left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Every deal that I've ever done, I've had at least one other co-sponsor with me on the deal. Now, in terms of the asset management and the running of that deal, I did a vast majority of the work, but I did have somebody on my side and somebody who had a lot of experience. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm pleased today to have Matt Pacheni with us. He's the founder of Pacheni. It's a company that acquires underperforming real estate assets and adds value through capital improvement programs, professional property management, and repositioning. He's focused on helping investors develop passive income streams while elevating communities through real estate investment and community enrichment, which is one of the things I really like. He's a member of the Left Field Investors Infielder community and has been for quite some time. He is about to be a published author. And we're going to talk about that. And he has over 2,300 apartment units under management with a value of over $225 million. Matt, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jim. So we were talking a little bit beforehand, and the way I usually like to start out is just tell us your journey. And I know the book, which I've read already, um, not the final version, but a version is going to come out and, and tell us all about that. But can you give us kind of how did you get to where you are in real estate, in passive investing, in syndications from where you started? Yeah, I mean, the short version of it is pretty simple. I started off moving to New York City and ended up to pursue a career in theater, which I did successfully. And then I segued into digital marketing. When I did that, it was at a time that I needed to find a place to live. And so I have bought an apartment and I ended up selling that apartment about two and a half years later and quadrupling the equity that I had in that apartment, which <laughs> blew me away. And I said, wow, there's something to this real estate game. And I started to get involved in real estate as a hobby, as something on the side. And so as I was you know, doing my... I lived in New York initially for almost 25 years and 
was sort of between the acting and then and then that was about the first five years and then about 18 years climbing the corporate ladder, if you will, in digital marketing. While I was doing that on the side, I did a little bit of real estate stuff here and there. I just dabbled and had a lot of fun doing it, really enjoyed it, learned a ton. And so after having done that on the side for about 10 years of investment in real estate, I decided to go full-time and that coincided with a change of location for us. My wife got an amazing job opportunity completely out of the blue that had us move to Miami, Florida. And when we made that move is when I transitioned into doing real estate full-time and went from a hobby to becoming a full-time investor and also a syndicator, a sponsor. I actually uh, GP a lot of deals on my own. Um, but I also a passive investor. It's why I'm a member of the left field in, infielders group, right? Because I'm passively investing in deals. Two-thirds of my portfolio are deals I'm passively invested in as a limited partner. The other third are deals that I actively manage. And so that's basically the short version of a very long story. As you mentioned, there's a whole book about it, but that's how I got to here. So I'd like to understand more about how do you make the decision to be a, a GP? We have a lot of people that are just getting into, and a GP is general partner, LP, limited partner. So if you start out as a limited partner and you're in a few deals, how do you make the jump to becoming a GP? Can you talk a little bit about how you did that and maybe why you did that and what the difference is now? Sure. Well, I will say this. I don't think being a GP is for everybody, right? For me, the reason why I wanted to do that was because I had experience doing real estate, right? I have been actively involved in real estate on the side, okay? But definitely involved in real estate. I had been doing... I had rental properties. I had fixed and flipped properties. And it was something that I enjoyed and had a passion for it was something that I wanted to do, like the actual like management of the properties, something that I like. I also had a parallel experience when I worked in advertising. When I worked in advertising, I worked as a project manager. I'm actually a PMI certified project manager, which just means that I know how to manage people, budgets, and timelines. I would work on projects for very large companies like Verizon and Visa and Coca-Cola and manage teams of over 100 people in multiple countries. We'd have teams in India and Germany and also in Chicago and the US and Aruba. I mean, we would, we would be working with... I would work with teams across the globe and manage multi-million dollar projects. And so for me, just transitioning that over from the digital marketing world over to real estate, where I had a lot of experience in real estate, not multifamily real estate, but the basic fundamentals of real estate and the fundamentals of the managing the people, the budgets and the timelines, that's all the same, right? The same techniques, the same skills that I learned and acquired and honed for companies like Pfizer and, and Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble, right? Those I was able to transfer just to a different subject, which was real estate, which I had been studying part-time for years. And, and when we made that transition and I went into doing it full-time, I, I dived in uh, headfirst. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's great. I, you know, when I look at sponsors, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, if you don't have experience in being a real estate syndicator, as no one does, right? When they do their first deal, obviously, then I want to know what else do you have that will qualify you for this? And as you said, you're familiar with real estate, but you had project management experience. So I'm sure that has 
just amplified your skills in being a GP, right? And so the first deals you did as a GP, you did smaller deals and you were a solo GP. Is that correct? Well, actually it's not. So what I did, my first general partnership was I, I brought in somebody else, right? Okay. So, okay. so I brought in a co-sponsor. Every deal that I've ever done, I've had at least one other co-sponsor with me on the deal. Now, in terms of the asset management and the running of that deal, I did a vast majority of the work, but I did have somebody on my side and somebody who had a lot of experience. You know, The person that I picked to partner with on that first deal had done like, I think around 10 other deals at that time. So I had a co-pilot who'd actually flown this flight before, if you will. So that was very, very important to me. I think it was important to my investors as well, that if I was going to run into any snags along the way, hopefully this other person that I was partnering with would be able to help and lend their experience and help us get through those issues. So that's what I did. And that's what I've continued to do. You know, I don't have a large staff. I don't have huge overhead, which is one of the reasons why when you look at the returns that I give to the investors, they tend to be on the, on the higher end of, of the barometer of things. The fees tend to be on the lower end of the barometer of things. And one of the reasons why is I don't have a very large overhead in staff that I have to pay, but I tend to partner with people so that I can share responsibilities, right? Based on different skill sets. I mean, I, I tend to have two general partners that I work with a lot and we work very, very well together and we have our different strong suits. So I can focus on the things that I'm maybe stronger at or just maybe more interested in and they can do the others. You know, on the first several deals that I did, I was very, very in charge of the financials. And I mean, I'm obviously still very, very, very involved. But one of those partners on the team that I was talking about has a background as an actuary. And he is just all about numbers. And so he really enjoys diving deep into the general ledger every month and look at every single expense with the property management team. And I did that before. And it's not that I didn't know what I was doing or I wasn't able to do that. Don't forget, I was managed, I was I was responsible for PL on, on millions and millions of dollars on these other projects in the advertising world. I'm used to doing that. But I don't think that that's necessarily my favorite thing to do. And he, it, it is his favorite thing to do. So we let him sort of focus on that. And I focus on other areas. I'm focusing more on the call. And it, we're all on the calls together, but the weekly calls with the project management team. I'm working on the interior upgrades. I'm looking at the market, seeing what's going on. Are rents right? Do we need to have concessions? Should we increase rents? You know, looking at all of that kind of stuff and overseeing all the marketing for the property. So then those are the kinds of things that I really love and get excited about. One of the other partners has a, a really big construction background and he does a lot of the exterior improvements. And again, I've managed those projects before and I certainly can, but it's something he likes doing. So we can sort of divvy things up into things that we're interested in and passionate about. And if I finally went on vacation for one week this year, <laughs> I usually don't do that. But when I went on vacation... I was able to reach out to my partners and say, hey, guys, I'm going to be out next week. Well, I'm going to, I gave them a little more advanced notice than just a week, but they took over everything while I was away. And I, it was just a phone call away, but it's nice to have other people that you can lean on from time to time when things are going on. Uh, also, you know, fortunately, my father passed away this year. And so 
I took a little time off for that too. I took about a week off for that. And I, you know, used my general partners to help kind of bolster things, just make sure everything was running well operationally. And it, it ran very smoothly. Yeah. And I think that's the community or the network that you build. We talk a lot about that at Left Field Investors, building a community. But that's also what you're doing with co-sponsoring deals, right? Is you're having your network and you're each using the skills that you have to share knowledge and, and help each other. And I think in whether it's a small network of three people being co-GPs on a deal or a larger network like Left Field Investors, it's everybody working together towards a common goal. So I really like the way that you're doing that. And I'd like to dig into it a little bit more because I think when we're investing, we don't necessarily pay as much attention maybe to who's on the GP as much as we should. Like some of the deals, they come from you. And I think, okay, Matt's doing this deal. Let's let's evaluate it. And I'm, I'm digging into the deal. I've already vetted you as the sponsor. I like the market. Now I'm digging into the deal. But I don't really say, hey, Matt, who are these other people you're working with? And so can you talk to us a little bit about what kind of questions should we be asking? Do we need to vet every single GP or do we just vet the overall Pacheni group? Can you talk a little bit how a passive would get through this? Yeah, I think that very much depends on the particular situation. One of the things that I go into in the book is how to vet a deal and how to vet a sponsor. And you know, one of the things that I always talk about is I don't raise money for deals. I do have investors that, that invest in my deals, but there are people out there that are solely raising money, right? raising capital. And it's not really allowed by the SEC rules. But beyond that, as an investor, I won't invest in those deals through that person because they don't have a seat at the table. If something goes wrong, you know, Jim, if you're, if you're telling me you're doing a deal and you, you know, I give you 100K and something's going wrong with the deal, I'm going to want to know from you, Jim, what's going on? Jim, what are you doing to fix it? And if you're like, well, I don't know, the general partner, you know, the other GPs are making all the decisions. It, it makes things kind of awkward and strange, right? So I always have to have a seat at the table if I'm involved in a deal. I'm not autonomous, right? I, I do have partners that I work with. And those partners that I work with, for the most part, I've worked with them in the past or I've known them for years. Every person that I've ever partnered with on a deal, you know, I've known for several years, mostly five or six years before I, I would go into business with somebody because I'm going into business with them and I'm staking my name and my reputation and my business on being able to partner and work well with them. And so far, that's worked out really well. But a lot of times I'll invest in their deals and they'll invest in my deals passively for maybe a few times before we even do a deal as GPs together. So do you need to vet all the other general partners to the same extent? Probably not. I'll let you know that when we do our deals, I put together a very extensive investment summary. And inside of there, we have the bios on all of the general partners. And then we have a webinar um, that we do before we open the offering up for subscription and we usually have most of the general partners on there. It depends because sometimes they may be doing a webinar that night as well. So sometimes I have half of them on, but it, it just sort of depends on what's going on and the situation. But like a lot of the people who've invested in my deals, they'll see the team because it's the same team that we keep reusing again. And again, maybe one person's a little different here or there, just depending on the exact situation of that deal. But I think it's important to know who they are make sure that they have that they're bringing some value to the team and, and just sort of understand what that is but ultimately i think as an investor you're going to have that one sponsor that you have that 
relationship with. And that that's going to be sort of the key relationship because you're probably not going to call one of the other general partners if there's an issue. You're probably going to call the person you gave money yeah, to. The one you have the relationship with, yeah. right? But how do I know then? You talked about, so there, there's capital raisers who are people that are going out and getting the capital and they're bringing them to several, so usually select syndication partners, but they call it their deal when it comes out, right? So how do I know who has a seat at the table? You mentioned you want to invest with someone who's sitting at the table making the management decisions. So as a passive, how do I know who's sitting at that table? Well, I mean, hopefully the person that you're talking with, that you're planning to give 50K, 100K, however much it is, hopefully you trust them enough to be able to ask them and just say, hey, are you like a decision maker on this deal? Like, what is your exact role? And see what they say. Another way, and I think that's the best thing to do because then the other way is just getting a little further into the weeds, but they should have, you know, if they're doing this legally, they're going to have a private placement memorandum and a company agreement. And in those documents, it should state who are the general partners in the deal and who's signing on the loan. You know, if they're not signing on the loan, that's a red flag to me. And if their name's not listed in the documentation anywhere, well, they're not really a general partner, really. I mean, maybe, but not really. So yeah, they would need to be listed in that, the actual documentation. They should also be, there should be an investment summary and they should have their, you know, their photo and bio or whatever, but they may or may not do that for some reason. I don't know how everybody's marketing their own deals. We always do that. But beyond that, they could have their name on a PowerPoint and still not be in the actual legal documentation. So that's how you could, you know, you should probably ask them first, see what they say, and then you verify as you're going through the documents to see if they're listed there. And I think that that is just such good advice. Ask the question. And it's not just who's the GP or what's your role on this. It's for anything that comes out with these syndications. Like you said, you're sending someone fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. Don't be afraid to ask the question. And for me, if they're squirmy or they don't like answering it or they get a little obtuse, there are plenty of quality syndicators out there. You don't need to force it with someone if they're not going to be able to explain clearly what their role is or anything about the deal, right? So that I totally agree with. And also, I have to be honest, I don't always pour through those things as, as deeply as I should. When you have a deal where there's multiple partners and you have a question about it, digging through the documents, you know, you should absolutely make sure that they are who they say they are. And I don't think people are out there intentionally deceiving, but there are different relationships with every syndicator and it's important to figure out what those are. You know, as a passive, when I'm looking at those documents, a lot of them are written by one of like three or four SEC attorneys. So they get to be very similar. You can start looking at it and I could probably tell you who the attorney was, you know, just from looking at the cover page. But I skim through those documents. There's specific things that I'm looking for. I look to see, you know, who the general partners are as they're named. I look to see what are the information on how cash is going to be distributed. And, and you know, there's usually a section that goes through the whole detail of how cash is going to be distributed. If, if there's like a preferred return will be listed in there and how the split is. And if there's a waterfall, all of that will be very, very detailed. Talk, you know, like a schedule of fees. The other thing I always look for is I look at for capital calls, right? I want to see, am I going to be compelled to, to participate in a capital call or not? I, there was one deal that I saw where it was like, if there's a capital call and you don't put in the amount, whatever that amount ends up being, you're basically like taken out of it and deal in, in its entirety. I didn't 
invest in that deal. The other deals and the way that I structure mine and the ones I'll invest in are, are, look, if there's a capital call and you don't contribute, your shares will be diluted because, I mean, that's what would happen, but you don't lose the money you already put in there. So that's something I look for. The other, the other thing I always look for is, you know, as a limited partner, you don't get to really make any decisions on the deal. The decisions are all made by the general partnership. Now, what if the general partners, the general partners vote in a manager, which is usually themselves, right? And they manage the asset. They're the asset managers and then they'll hire a third-party property management company usually. But what if they're doing a terrible job? There needs to be some mechanism in which you can remove them as the managers. And so that's a clause that I've seen in deals that I was investing in as a limited partner. And I wanted that in the deals that I was doing as a general partner to protect the investors. And basically, they if there's a super majority, they can go ahead and vote out the manager. They can vote me out if I'm doing a terrible job. And they should be able to. That's the only right thing. So that's another thing that I'm always looking for in deals. That's like a worst case scenario. Like I've never had it happen. I've heard of it happening one time to one person, but that needs to be there for me to invest in a deal. I think that's great advice. You know, one of the, we have a deal analyzer in the left field investors that we use for every deal, and it really doesn't have a whole lot on the PPM, the private placement memorandum and, and the operating agreement, the documents that you need to look at. And it's a common question, like what are the things to look for? And I think you just added four new items that we can really dig into because to be honest, these are 90 page documents written by a lawyer, half of it's all caps. And you got to figure out (laughs) how to dig in and which parts you're going to read and which parts you're going to say, okay, that's the standard attorney language. So I think that's really helpful. You, You know, you also mentioned investing as a passive. And so I would like to shift a little bit. And could you talk a little bit about your passive investing? Like, how do you diversify? Because you're a syndicator that's doing multifamily. So do you diversify by asset class, by markets? How do you do that? And then how do you evaluate? This is a big question. How do you evaluate a sponsor knowing what you know as a sponsor? Yeah. So in terms of passive investing, I have focused mainly on multifamily. It is something that I know and that I understand. I also know and understand theater extremely well because of my theatrical background and because my wife is a, on the business side of theater. So my passive investments include real estate and also Broadway shows. So I've invested in quite a few Broadway shows, some of which you've probably heard. And that's a way that I can combine both my love of the arts and my passion for the arts and also investing. And that's important to me. It's also extremely risky. Uh, It is a very, very high risk. The risk reward ratio is incredible. Now, if you have a big hit, your returns can be phenomenal, right? But most shows lose money. So I do that very cautiously and in a very calculated manner. Most of my investments are in real estate. Most of them are multifamily. I have invested in some new construction projects along the lines of buying property and going through entitlements and then going into ground up. That is something that I have been doing. I'm very interested in mobile home parks. I've got an operator that I've honed in on actually heard about that one through the left field investors community. And I've spoken with other left fielders about 
this particular sponsor. And so I think I'm going to invest in one of their deals in the near future. And, you know, I'll probably do some other things at some point. I mean, I think it's good to diversify, but the next door neighbor of my father-in-law, father and mother-in-law, he is a like a wealth management sort of guy for these large, massive family offices. So he helps manage just gazillion, like literally gazillions of dollars. <laughs> I talked with him a few years ago about possibly investing in a fund of funds that I was looking at. And he looked at me, he said, why are you going to put money into a fund of funds when you can just invest that in real estate? You know, real estate, specifically multifamily, like you know it really well. He said, you know, you should focus on the one thing that you know really well, because you know that better than, you know, the fund of funds, you're just, you know, I mean, it could be good. It could be great. And so I thought that was really great advice from an older gentleman who's been around the block a lot. I've also, since then, I think I've heard this phrase, like you get rich in the niche or something something along those lines. If I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but something like that, you get riches in the niches or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) But so I've focused on the multifamily and I've developed quite a large portfolio. I mean, I'm invested in over 8,000 units now across the country. And so I am diversifying into other things, but those are more risky, I think, because I don't know them as well and I can't analyze them as well. There's risk involved in the multifamily stuff as well, right? But even more so. So I'm dabbling in those other things. I think it's important to be diversified. So I'm not going against that, but I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go, okay, one mobile home park, one assisted living, one multifamily one single family and then go back around, you know, the circle. I, I just, that hasn't made sense to me so far. And I own a couple single families, you know, I, I do have some things, but mainly multifamily. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe This. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. That's the problem with diversification, right? Is you're either one or the other almost, where if you're really diversifying, you're in so many different things, you're really not going to develop an expertise, but you're also protected if something, you know, if one or two of the asset classes don't work out. Whereas if you're an expert in something like you are an expert in Broadway shows and you're an expert in multifamily, then it makes sense maybe not to diversify as much because you have such a depth of knowledge of those asset classes. So I think when people think of diversification, each person's diversification is going to be very different, right? Mine is going to be very different from yours because I don't have the expertise you have. And I may have a different breadth of knowledge while you have a different depth of knowledge. So I think we talk a lot about diversification in left field investors and what the proper strategy is. And I think through this conversation, I'm kind of coming around to, it's got to be an individual thing based on where you are and where you want to be. I would agree. And I would add that Within multifamily, I happen to be very diversified in terms of geography, in terms of asset class, A, B, or C, in terms of the different operators that I've invested with. So I do have 
some diversification, but it is all multifamily, right? So if multifamily were to somehow the bottom drop out in every single market across America, I'd have to hope that Broadway was doing really well. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and obviously that's unlikely to happen, which is what your diversification strategy is. You just said it. It's by market, it's by operator, and it's by ABC quality of the property or the neighborhood. So you're still diversifying, right? And then I think it's great. The Broadway shows, I mean, we could do a whole episode on that. I know we've talked about it before. It's super interesting, but that's also the part of your portfolio that could go to the moon, right? That's the part that you really could have outsized returns where the apartment investing is more like singles and doubles. Correct. That's 100% correct. I'm happy with the base hits from the multifamily. When I'm looking at the new construction type of things, I'm looking for doubles, you know, stand-up doubles. For Broadway, we're swinging for the fences and a lot of times we strike out. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. But when we get a grand slam, it's amazing and the outsized returns to cover the previous losses. So Right. Well, the other question I, I asked in my long-winded question a few minutes ago was, can you talk a little bit about how you evaluate a sponsor based on your knowledge from being a sponsor? So what are some things that we could look for as passive investors maybe some red flags or just how you do the process? You know, I I do go into that a bit in depth in the book. It's hard for me to boil it down to a couple of sound bites to go into in a podcast. I'll I'll try, right? But because for me, most of the people that I'm investing with now are people that I've gotten to know over time. They are people that I've met through groups like Left Field or, or other types of investments. And they're people that other people have recommended, right? When I was just talking about the mobile home park operator, I haven't really networked with many mobile home park operators, but it, someone was recommended through Left Field. And I talked with this one about and that one about this person, and they've all invested and they've given me the thumbs up, right? And I think that's the best way. Beyond that, you know, in terms of red flags, we spoke a little bit earlier about what is their role in the deal and, and whether they're actually <laughs> participating in the deal. Do have they have experience doing this? What is their track record in real estate? Or do they have a track record somewhere else? Like I was talking, look, everyone has to start somewhere. I had parallel experience and I had real estate experience. It just wasn't multifamily real estate. So those two combined, it made sense. It was congruent. It wasn't like coming completely from left field. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so I would say one of the other things was something that you talked about, which was when you're having those initial conversations with them. How do they react when you're asking questions? If they don't answer you or can get you the documentation that you want, whatever, upfront at the beginning of the relationship, the relationship's just going to not really proceed from there. And on the other hand, like as a syndicator, I am more than willing to work with people and help them and make sure that they understand the deal and provide documentation to a certain extent. There are very, very few people in this world who are just over the top with the requests. And right. that could be, you know, maybe it's just not the right gelling situation. You got to make sure you gel with the person that you feel some good camaraderie there. I mean, because you are, you're trusting them to be a good steward of your hard-earned money. I mean, this is not chump change, you know, for anybody. And if 50K is chump change to you, you're probably not Investing 50K in one of these deals, you're probably one of the guys who's putting in 500K, right? And so but at whatever amount that you're investing for you, right, it's probably significant. 
And you want to make sure that that person's going to, like I said, be a good steward of that capital. That makes sense. The the thing that I liked, which well, all of it I liked, but the one thing that that kind of hit me was the referrals, right? So to find sponsors, you either you already know them or they come referred from someone that you know, like, and trust. In this industry, we talk all the time about know, like, and trust, and that's transferable, right? So if you know somebody and you recommend them to me, then that that just gives me a leg up. It's just an easier way to start a relationship with a new syndicator. So I really appreciate that advice. It also depends who the referrer is, right? So some people, like I get asked often, you know, what syndicators do you recommend? And I almost all the time decline to answer that question because I have very, very, very high standards. If someone asks me about a specific syndicator, I'll, I'll tell them. But if I'm recommending somebody, they know my friends and people that I know know, like if I recommend somebody, they can take that to the, you know, pretty much take it to the bank. Otherwise, I'll caveat it be like, well, I don't really know. I've kind of heard this about this. You want to make sure whoever you're getting the referral from <laughs> is a good source. Right. And is actually maybe invested in the deal. You know, you know, one of the, uh, I got some good advice from uh, David Shirky, one of the infielders. And, and he says, you know, he does not invest or he tries not to invest with the same syndicator for the second time until a year has gone by. And he won't recommend anybody until a year has gone by because these are such long term deals. And a year probably isn't even long enough, but you just don't know what's going to happen or, or you, you can't get a real sense until you've been with them for a while. So it is a hard thing because I get asked all the time for, you know, what are your favorite syndicators, who you recommend? And, and it's a hard thing just to say, oh yeah, here's my list, right? It's a little more nuanced than that. I would agree. And I like David. He's a smart guy. And I think that's really good advice actually on the, the waiting a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, and I've tried to do it. And sometimes I just get too excited and I do a second deal anyways, but I'm, I'm trying to get, <laughs> get better at that. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, waiting a year before you're recommending somebody, maybe, you know, and, and kind of seeing how that goes. I've, I've invested with people, you know, maybe I do one and then nine months later, if it's going well, you know, I, I can pretty much tell within the first like three months or so, if it, how it's going and what's going to happen. I mean, just, because do the communication with them and everything like that. And the, the communication is sometimes more important than actually how the deal performs. Sometimes. I mean, you don't want to lose money, but you know, if the communication is there and they're they're giving you good information and you feel like you're being kept abreast of everything, and then maybe their returns a couple percentage points short lower than somebody else, but you only hear from that person like once every six months. <laughs> like I'd go with the guy I hear from more frequently personally. But that's my own style. Absolutely. I mean, there, there's nothing more frustrating than not knowing how the deal is performing and not hearing anything. I, I would rather give up a few points to have someone explaining what's happening. Or if things are going poorly and you explain in time and why, then I'm inclined to understand it and maybe do another deal with you again. But if it's going poorly and you're not speaking to me or communicating, that's an easy no for that. I want to transition here and one of your focuses, which I really like when you're buying properties, is community enrichment, right? Or doing something good for the community as well as for the investors. And obviously, our whole goal here is to make money. But man, it's nice on the side to make the world a little bit better place. So can you talk a little bit about what you do and how that affects the return on the properties? Yeah. If you read my book, you'll get my sort of origin story. But it came from a place... The real estate thing sort of came up from a place of 
I don't know if I would say desperation, but sort of necessity and needing a place to live and not having a lot of money and being a fan of the musical Rent, which is basically about like an evil landlord kicking up, right? So, right, and he's the evil guy, right, in the in the story. And so I kind of carry that sense of this 90s idealism with me to this day. I'm not like a hippie and, and I'm not a charity, right? And but I donate money to, to charitable causes, especially... I'm very involved in a, an organization that, that prevents homelessness and provides people with permanent housing. But when it comes to the business, I'm here to make money and, and make money for the investors. But I think that you can do good by doing good, right? I mean, I think you can do well. You can make money and still be a person with a conscience and have a business that tries to make improvements. And so it's for us, when it comes to the multifamily what we're looking to do is we're looking to add value, right? And so by adding value to that community in a few different ways, which I'll I'll give examples of, we're actually able to add value to the property, which makes the property worth more money, which means the investors make more money. And this can extend out not just from the community that you're, you know, the apartment community or the investors, but it can actually be something like, for the whole world, like you can make the world a better place. And that sounds kind of lofty. And I'm, I'm not saying like I'm changing the whole world or anything, but I'm going to give you a concrete example of that, which is, you know, one of the properties, we've done this on a few different properties. One of the properties we had, there was well over 300 bathrooms, right? And we went in and did a water conservation program uh, in the bathrooms. We, we pulled out all the toilets and put in a uh, these great, they're awesome because they're flapperless, so they don't run and they don't get stuck. And our maintenance team loves using them, but they're very, very low water per, for each flush. And we did you know new shower heads, sink aerators. What we were able to do with that was we did this through a program with Fannie Mae. They have a green program. So that gave us a reduced interest rate So by, for doing these improvements. So from our bottom line, it brought our interest rate down, which saved us money. The tenants paid their water bills. It wasn't some of these, you know, it's all bill. If it was all bills paid, it would have affected our bottom line even more. But the tenants paid the water bills. The tenants were thrilled because they got brand new fixtures, you know, in their house. Number one, they worked better. And they saw their water bill cut by like a third. So they were like, that's awesome. (laughs) But then you look at what we're doing for the planet. You know, when I was talking about it extending to the whole world and and look, 300 some odd toilets is not going to stop the climate change or anything like that or or conserve um, huge amounts of water. But, you know, it's a little thing. It's these little things, little bits. Everybody does a little bit. You know, I, I, I recycle my garbage in my house, right? And that, that's my little bit is, is I do recycling and things like that. You do, everyone pitches in a little and it can make the world better. And so that's what we try to do. And we try to do that in terms of like the tenants with like, especially with COVID, right? So we had a good amount of tenants depending on the property that would have had issues, right? With paying rent. And the first thing I, that I, I always say when we start a new, when we acquire a new property, when I'm speaking with the project, uh, sorry, property management team, or if we have you know a new person on staff, I always tell them we are not in the job of kicking people out of their homes. 
we are in the job of keeping people in their homes, right? And you know, look, tenant turnover is one of the most expensive costs that you're gonna you're gonna have when you have to turn a turn a unit over. It could be vacant. So from a bottom line perspective, it makes sense. But but really, it's about being human and not. I don't want to kick people out of their houses. I don't. So we work with people even before COVID. I mean, this is something that we did. There was a big government furlough about four years ago or something like that, where all the government employees weren't getting paid for a certain amount of time. And you know, we had this one tenant, she was like going to go to the pawn shop and sell some of her stuff to pay. And we said, don't sell your stuff. Like We understand you're a good person and they, they have been paying their rent all along. And we said, well, we'll float you. We had her sign a document, and, but we, we took care of it. And then once the furlough was over, she got her back pay and paid up and everything was fine. And so we try to work with tenants, depending on what their exact situation is, to keep them in, their, in the property. And we also try to make sure that all, all our employees are good. You know, we, we work with, we, we try to make sure that everybody, I, I, we don't have complete control over the property management companies, but we definitely want to make sure that we have diverse people with diverse backgrounds and interests, you know, whether that's the color of the skin or their sexual orientation or whatever. Like we want everybody. It's, it's just, we try to be very inclusive and build community. Yeah. And I, I think that's great. Obviously, you know, we want to make money on these deals, but man, it really is nice if, if there's some extra things on the side that are helping society, a community or, or whatever. So that really, that really resonates for me. I, I really like that. So we're running late on time, but I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about your book. You know, if you could give us a, a quick, what, what, you know, why, why did you write it? Where can I get it? So I wrote it pretty much for the left field community. Not really. I mean, it, it didn't exist at the time, but I was running a meetup in Boston. I just moved back to New York City. But when I was in Boston, I was running a big meetup there. And people would ask me all the time, hey, you know, would you mind looking at this deal? I'm thinking about investing passively. And I, I would ask them questions like, oh, how did you meet this person? Oh, they just randomly messaged me on Facebook. And so my answer was like, well, that's probably no right there. But there was other, you know, many other things like the, the items that we've already talked about today, right? So I wanted to sort of document. It, was, it started taking up a lot of my time. So maybe it was slightly selfish, but I wanted to write some sort of documentation that would explain this to everybody. And I started putting that together and I wrote an 80-page document that was really dense and just terrible and very difficult to read. <laughs> and so um, I started working with... I, I knew someone who, who had helped him, a CEO that I had worked with write a book. And I reached out to her and said, hey, what do you think of this? And she was like, oh my God, I want to like shoot myself while I'm trying to read this. Like, She's <laughs> like, it's great information, but this is so dense. And she's like, "You know what you really need to do is why don't you tell everybody your story? So that's what I've done. I've taken my story, my narrative, and along the way, as I learned certain lessons, I teach those lessons in the book. And I do it through the different stories of actual real-life experiences. So you get all that information on like how to vet sponsors and how syndication deals can go wrong. It, it starts off early talking about, you know, in the, in the first few chapters, you know, what's a liability? What's an asset? By the end of the book, we're talking about air rights and 1031 exchanges. So it kind of runs the gamut. And then at the back of the book, there are as basically like an appendix. And in there, there's how to vet a syndication and then a very in-depth conversation on the nuts and bolts where I talk about like 
cap rates and cap rate expansion and a whole bunch of rental growth and what that should look like. And so I think it's a really good book for people to sort of read, kind of hopefully maybe enjoy learning a little bit about my story, but hopefully there's some good humor in there. They'll pick up in the book wherever they sort of need to as they're reading maybe the first few chapters they're not learning, but I think by the end, they'll learn some things. And then at the end, that book is almost like a handbook there where they can sort of use it as they're evaluating deals. And I mean, I've got like, I think almost 60 real estate terms that are explained in the book. And at the back of the book, there's a glossary that has all of them. Um, so I think it'll be a good resource for people and hopefully entertaining to read. All right. So how do we get it? Well, it's called Backstage Guide to Real Estate. Just go to my website, pacheni.com. It's P like in Peter, I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. There's a link to get it there. You can also sign up for my newsletter. The book's coming out in November. So if it's before November, you can pre-order on there. If it's after November, you can just go ahead and buy it. Excellent. Well, thank you. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And then the, the last question I have for you is, what's a great podcast that you listen to that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, the Left Field Investors podcast is amazing. I love, I love that. that one. <laughs> Look, I really like the Real Estate Guys, the Real Estate Guys radio show. I think it's really interesting. I've attended some of their events and things like that. They're, they're very smart gentlemen. And the way that they do their podcast is very sort of 30,000 foot sort of looking at real estate, the entire real estate landscape. And so I really like that. I think they do a, a really good job. Is, have they been recommended before? Do I need to give you another one? or is, is that No, okay? no, that, that, that's perfect. That's <laughs> one of the ones I listen to as well. So I, I really enjoy that one. And, and I appreciate the shout out for Left Field Investors as well. So the last thing is, how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to contact you? I love chatting with people about real estate. Just go to my website, pacheni.com. There's a contact page. You can shoot me an email, give me a phone call, send a message through the website, whatever you want. And we have a newsletter where I try to give some tips and, and tricks for investors every month. So you can sign up for that through the website as well. Great. And I, I definitely recommend signing up for the newsletter. I get it. I'm investing with, with you. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being here. And next time, we will definitely talk more about the Broadway shows because that stuff is fascinating. So hopefully you'll be on with us again. Yeah, you know what we'll do? My wife will have her on it as well. I think it'll be fun for the both of us to do that with you. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being here, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Take care. You too. Had fun talking to Matt. He has been, since the beginning, a great friend to left field investors. So we appreciate him being part of our community. I liked how he was talking about, you know, he partners with other GPs and the reasons he does that. And part of it is so he can concentrate on his strengths and he partners up with other people who have different strengths than him. And it just makes the partnership stronger. And so while you're evaluating sponsors, if you can figure out, hey, you know, if, if people are partnering with each other and they have different strengths, I just think that makes the partnership that much stronger and probably makes the likelihood that your investment performs that much better. He also talks about the importance of getting to know the team for each investment. So you have multiple GPs. You don't really have to get to know all of them. You want to know that they're all contributing and what they're doing. Your main relationship is probably going to be the one that brought you to the deal, but you have to at least be aware of what the other general partners are doing. And ask questions. What he said was, don't be afraid to ask questions. You're going to send someone $50,000, $100,000, they need to be able to answer the tough questions. So don't be afraid to answer it. If the GP is being evasive or they don't want to answer, there's plenty of other sponsors that you can go find. Matt also talked about 
diversification and the importance of that. But he offered a counterpoint. He knows multifamily. That's what he does for a living. So he focuses on that as an asset class every day. He adds some other asset classes when he's doing his own passive investing, but he's not going to diversify and say, I need one of these. I need a mobile home. I need self-storage. I need. He's going to focus on a theater, which he, he invests in uh, some Broadway shows, and multifamily because those are his strengths. So every person is going to have a different take on diversification. It's different for everyone based on your knowledge and your experience. So don't get too caught up in, as I said, take one from this column and one from that column. Make sure that you are working towards or working with your knowledge and your expertise in mind. And again, we've said this a bunch lately, but how to find a sponsor. His take, best way, use your network. People that are already investing with the sponsors, they recommend sponsors to you. Use people you know, like, and trust and get a referral. The key thing that he said in there, though, is factor in who the person referring you is and what their expertise is. Just because you know them and you like them and you trust them doesn't mean that they're the person that's going to give you the best quality referral. Matt also talked briefly about his book. It should be available now, so go out and check it out. I read the manuscript. It's a fantastic read, a lot of education in it, but also a pretty good story. So go check it out. That's it for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.